Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. What happened to music that meant something? The Who at the Kingdom or Kiss at the Coliseum. Where is the Misty Mountain Hop? Where is the is the smoke on the water? Where is the Iron Man of today? Hey, this is not a test. This is rock and roll. Welcome to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. I'm Jim DeRogatis, the pop music critic at the Chicago Sun-Times. And I'm Greg Cutts. I write about rock and roll for the Chicago Tribune. Today on the world's only rock and roll talk show, Jim and I are going to review two of the most heavily anticipated albums of the year from 50 Cent and Kanye West. Then it'll be Greg's turn to pop a quarter in the Desert Island Jukebox. You're listening to Sound Opinions, and time now for some music news. Greg, this is the 93rd public radio installment of Sound Opinions, and for 93 weeks here, we have been covering the slow and painful death of the music industry. Everybody wants to know, what does the future of this industry, uh, what's it going to be, right? We have two stories this week that are offering two different views from two people who are renowned record men. I think it's worth mentioning first, before we get to those, Bertelsmann, the biggest music publisher in Europe, one of the four big major labels left standing, uh, has posted a phenomenal... Phenomenal loss recently, $69 million, bailing out all of those lawsuits from Napster. If you recall, Napster was the first big file-sharing program. It was the vision of this kid who started it in his dorm room, Sean Fanning, give away music for free, right? That's one model of what the future of the industry is going to look like. Uh, however, Bertelsmann invested in this company just before it went bankrupt, and instead of having this new tool to take them into the new age, all they wound up with was this incredible debt from these lawsuits. All the major labels, if you recall, Metallica and a lot of major label bands sued Napster for giving away their music for free. Clearly, that's not the model that's going to take over the new music industry. What is? One interesting piece was in the New York Times this week, offering Rick Rubin's view. Exactly, Jim. There was this uh, cover story in the New York Times Sunday Magazine by a veteran writer, Lynn Hirschberg, detailing the vision of Rick Rubin, who is posing on the cover, Can Rick Rubin Save the Music Business? <laughs> so what is the future of the record industry, according to Rick Rubin? Well, I think there's a couple of interesting points here, Jim. First of all, Rick Rubin is a guy who comes from a heavy, heavy music background. His entire career has been spent producing records by artists like Johnny Cash, Slayer, the Beastie Boys, LL Cool J. Started Def Jam, speaking of dorm room entrepreneurs, started Def Jam in, in a dorm room at New York University. Exactly. He is a music guy. For the last five, six, seven, eight years, the music industry has moved away from music guys running the big labels. Eric Nicoli, the guy who just got fired at EMI Records, was a guy who came from food manufacturing. Right, He right. tried his hand at EMI for the last six, seven years. EMI has been losing money hand over fist. Rick Rubin now has been appointed the new head of Columbia Records. They're returning to these music guys. What is the future of music? Well, Rick Rubin is saying the future of music is music. Yeah. Let's put the <laughs> emphasis back on the content. Let's put the emphasis is back on the art. One other thing that Ruben is suggesting in this article is that he thinks the future of the music business is a subscription-based model. People are going to pay like 19 bucks a month and get all the music they want, anywhere they want, on these little handheld devices, probably similar to iPods, but much more far-reaching. 
and uh, be able to get any song at any time, anywhere they want for 19 bucks a month. Well, you would subscribe to Columbia right. Records, and then anything they put out you would get. I guess you would have to subscribe to all the different major well, see, labels. there's the flaw in that, right? Right, yeah, because who nope. cares what, what, what record label is putting out the music you like? And he's assuming that the four big labels, not to mention all the independent labels out there, are going to come to an agreement to pool all their resources in one centralized location where the, that music can be accessed. I don't know if that's going to happen. I don't know if that's a realistic goal. It's a dubious vision. I would also argue, Greg, that Ruben's reputation as, I mean, you know, in the record industry, the biggest compliment you can give a guy like Ruben or Clive Davis is they have ears, right? Yeah. For, for for the last century, that was the golden compliment. Right. They have ears. I would, you know, Ruben's been responsible for a lot of crap, too. I mean, sure. he put out the Ghetto Boys. He put out Andrew Dice Clay. And uh, some of the acts he's excited about now that he's running Columbia Records, well, one of them, I'm way behind, the gossip, this incredible punk rock explosion uh is it going to sell records heck no you know but i love the gossip yeah the other one he's all excited because one of the old line execs at columbia had heard on britain's got talent this artist that, that he was all excited about this guy this guy singing opera That's this guy, Paul Potts, who made a splash on Britain's Got Talent. And Ruben was moved to tears, according to this endless... And this article is making such a splash, we have to know. It's got to be 50,000 words long. It's so rare to see a piece this extensive in the New York Times or any major American magazine about the state of the music industry. So the entire music industry is buzzing about this. But I think at the bottom of all this hoopla is, like, you know, Ruben really doesn't have a plan, and Ruben's taste is dubious, because he's also excited about Neil Diamond, and that record sucked. We reviewed that. (laughs) Well, I think it's interesting to see what Alan McGee said, a man who's responsible for some of the greatest music of the last 20 years, the founder of Creation Records in the UK, I think he had a more realistic idea about what the future might be. Yeah, absolutely. McGee is another guy who has ears. He brought us Oasis. He brought us My Bloody Valentine, all of those English shoegazer bands of the 90s. And I think that that for a while, Creation was as successful in the UK and in the alternative era as Def Jam had been in the birth of hip-hop. McGee says, quite simple, Nobody wants to pay for music anymore. Let's give up this whole idea. The model has changed. He wrote an editorial for The Guardian a newspaper in the UK and said, you know, there are some people who still collect records. His son is one. Mm-hmm. His son apparently collects vinyl 45s from 1981. <laughs> but McGee says there's never going to be a future of the industry based on that model anymore. The only thing to do is to give away new recordings for free and – Money will be made on concert tickets and band T-shirts, mm-hmm. and that is the future of the model. All the music is just an enticement to come see the band live and to buy their merchandise and to invest in them in other ways. The problem with this, of course, is this is a man who had one of the most successful independent record labels in the last 30, 40 years. Mm-hmm. There's no need for record companies, right? right. <laughs> McGee says the bands will, the bands will thrive. You know, They're not going to have a problem, but record companies and Ruben – Will. I think that what, what the model is, the record companies become a marketing company. They put out the music. It's for free. They make it as widely available as possible, but they share in the revenue streams of, of the, uh, the touring and the merchandise. And, and that's the way that a record company can thrive with an artist in the future. Final Tap singing about Give Me Some Money. And, uh, Jim, we've talked a lot about how people get paid in the music industry in this segment or how they're going to get paid. Well, one of the ways that artists get paid, one of the most uh, reliable ways for them to get paid is the U.S. performance rights organizations, the three big U.S. performance rights organizations that distribute money to songwriters who have their songs performed. ASCAP, BMI, CSAC. BMI, one of the big three just distributed more than $732 million in royalties to songwriters. A huge, huge revenue stream that looks like it's going to become a key to the future of the music industry. Well, despite this cash rolling in, ASCAP, the biggest of the three, I believe, uh, has has announced uh, lawsuits of 26 different nightclubs, bars, restaurants in 17 states, a major crackdown with the goal of uh, getting more of these small venues to pay more money for uh, playing 
music by its artists in its joints, right? We're going to hear from a local bar owner in a little bit, but we wanted to talk to ASCAP's Vice President and Director of Licensing, Vincent Candelaro. Mr. Candelaro, is the goal of this new initiative just to remind people what the law is? Yeah, it really is. I mean, let me first state that uh, we do that as absolutely a last resort. I mean, ASCAP is owned by the actual songwriters and music publishers, and uh, they want every dollar that we spend pretty much, you know, going out to them in royalties. So we try and operate at a very low operating ratio. Suing uh, establishments is the last thing that we really want to do. Unfortunately, it's something that we find ourselves doing on somewhat of a regular basis. Yeah. Now, a lot of these are fairly small places. I mean, uh, you know, Greg and I are the rock critic at the at rock critics at the Chicago Tribune and the Chicago Sun Times. I've never sure. been to the O'Hare Ga- Gaslight Club in Chicago. Have you, Greg? No, <laughs> hardly. Lately, anyway. I-, I think it's safe to say, no offense to that establishment, Vincent, that it's hardly a hotbed of cutting edge music in Chicago. What they is are smaller. Cap- they are smaller venues, and I can attribute probably the reason that that's who we wind up having to sue, simply because that they are. Uh, they're, I, I guess the best way to describe it is to say that they think they're little fish and we have bigger fish to fry so that they can get away with it and they, they won't be sued. In most of these cases, are you alleging that uh, musicians got up and were playing cover songs of artists and the venue wasn't paying the rights or were they just playing CDs or jukeboxes uh, or the, the radio? Over, in the overwhelming majority of the ones that we sued, the live music was being performed, but as a matter of law, it doesn't matter whether they're playing a CD or whether it's a karaoke performance, whether it's a band, it's still the public performance of a musical composition. A copyrighted song, is sure. what you're saying. Yep. And, and what you're saying, too, is that how would the establishment keep track of this? Do they pay a licensing fee at the start of every year or at the start of every month, or are they expected to keep track of each individual song and then no, pay that, per that, song? How does it work? That's really the beauty of it, and that's why ASCAP was created. Um, since the copyright law more or less puts the onus on the user of music to obtain the permission from the copyright owner, you know, what you're talking about in theory is, wow, if I own a bar and I'm using music, copyrighted music, i got to find every copyright owner and get their permission and then negotiate what fee they're going to charge me so I can use their music and be in compliance with the copyright law. Well, that's why all the songwriters came together and formed ASCAP back in 1914. So to answer your question, no, they simply pay us a fee, which is a blanket license fee, meaning they can use any of the 8.5 million songs that we represent. They can use them as many times as they like, and they pay a flat fee, based on what we feel are fairly logical uh, licensing factors. And if we're talking about the public performance, so what's the size of the public? What's the seating capacity? So if you've got 75 seats, 100 seats, uh, there's no cover charge, you're just you know, using music in that manner, you're probably going to pay about $1.50 a day. Uh, of the $1.50 a day, yeah. uh, how much of that goes to songwriters? Okay, out of every dollar that ASCAP collects, 88 cents goes to our songwriters. We do not make a profit. We operate at a 12% operating ratio, which is the lowest of any of the performing rights organizations in this country. Mm Mm-hmm. But, Vincent, we have to remind people that there are three performers' rights organizations. ASCAP is is the biggest, probably the best well-known. So you have these three organizations basically hitting up sure. uh, a, a tiny bar sure. who's got some jamoke from around the corner coming in with an acoustic guitar, and he plays for four hours for a tip hat, mm-hmm. and he does a, one Beatles song. Right. <laughs> now, you know, so so $350 a year times three. Now, do you really think that that's the only music being used in these places? No, I don't. No, I mean, no, what no, do they, no, What do they play when he's not on? Well, well, that's that's you another, that's another mean, question. When, when somebody just puts the CD player on, sure. they've purchased the CDs, let's say, and, of, of course, part of that money is, is reverting to the songwriter. You know how much... You know how much of that money is reverting to the songwriter? The tiniest part of the pie. <laughs> yeah. It comes out to less than one-tenth of one percent of the gross revenue that the record company sees. Mm-hmm. You know, so everybody thinks that it's kind of that Robin Hood mentality. Anybody who writes a hit song must be a millionaire. 
You know, so how could I be hurting him by playing a CD in my establishment? That's why, that's why the copyright law exists, so that these songwriters can earn a living. Not all of them are Bruce Springsteen. Can you give us a number of how many uh, establishments, business establishments, actually have these licenses with Hundreds, ASCAP? I mean, hundreds of thousands. And it's a business expense. I mean, if you owned a restaurant, I'd walk in there and you're going to argue with me that people are coming to your restaurant because they like your Italian food. They don't come for the music. And then I'd ask you, do you serve parsley? Well, it's not on the menu. I don't see a price for it. But the restaurant owner has no problem paying for parsley. Why? Because he knew somebody planted it, somebody watered it, somebody shipped it to him? No, he pays for it because they'll stop delivering it if he doesn't. We can't do that. We can't stop people from buying CDs. We can't stop people from hiring bands. And that's why they try and get away without paying for the property that they're using. That's why ultimately, unfortunately, we wind up having to sue them. Mm. All right, we've been talking to Vincent Candelara, the VP and Director of Licensing at ASCAP. Thank you very much, Vincent. We appreciate you uh, coming on Sound Opinions. I appreciate the opportunity. Thanks. To get the bar owner's perspective, we turn to Mike Miller, who owns one of the uh, coolest drinking establishments in Chicago, the official rock and roll hangout, Delilah's. Hey, Mike, how you doing? I'm doing real well, Jim. I have never been into Delilah's where I haven't heard over the course of an evening at least two or three songs that got me absolutely jump up and down excited. You guys have great DJs. You occasionally have bands. How do you have to pay for that when you deal with the rights organizations? Well, you know, we're licensed to ASCAP, BMI, and CSAC. When you get the bill, you never feel all that good about it. But I pay. We're clearly supportive of the music scene and clearly supportive of the local musicians and stuff. And I'm for that. I've I've, talked to uh, several of my band friends about this issue as well. And everybody has a gray answer. Everybody wants to get paid, but everybody thinks, you know, maybe the music is being put on the back burner in favor of the business side of things. You know, Greg and I hear a lot of music. I have literally been to Delilah's where I've heard stuff that has made me go out and buy that album. Now, if you can do that to me, one could argue that you're turning as many people onto music as radio stations. Well, one could argue that you know, maybe they too. should be paying me. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Right. <laughs> well, let, all right, Mike, let's put some money on the table. What, are, what kind of fees are you paying to these three organizations? I think ASCAP is $1,500. Yeah. BMI is a little less, maybe... Eight hundred thousand bucks. Mm-hmm. I think CSAC. I pay about three hundred bucks. So mm. said about three grand a year. The the other thing here, if you're a music fan, you're wondering, okay, where does this twenty six hundred three thousand dollars end up? Does it where actually it end up in the pockets of the of the people who wrote these songs? You know, if I'm a painter, I paint my painting, I sell my painting to somebody, they own my painting, deal's done. Right. right. If I'm a musician, I create a song, I put it out there to the world. How do I get paid? I think it's a legitimate concern, and, and it should be monitored, and band should get paid. But the question is. Where's the money go, and how does the money get back to the band? Yeah, it's almost impossible. It's almost like you'd have to hire somebody to keep a, a record book, a running log of every song that's played, and give that to ASCAP, and that would be a bureaucratic nightmare for you, uh, which would compound the bureaucratic nightmare that they have right it. now. Yeah, it yeah. would end what we do, which is for fun and to promote music and to draw people in and show them things other than what's commonly available on the marketplace. So there's no way to do this, is there, Mike? <laughs> it doesn't seem like well, there's a you know, reasonable I, way like to I do said, this. Like I said, you know, it's, it's a huge behemoth. How do, how do you solve it? I'm not against the companies that are collecting the, the funds. I think the question is, how do they better disseminate the money out to the artists? And is there, some, is there something you know, out there that could be promoting the growth of music and using the money as, as a promotion of the live music scene and to, you know, as, especially as we're seeing the, the sales of records sink, should ASCAP be going in and, and spending money helping to promote record stores to stay in business? Yeah, maybe, because do the White Stripes need that check, or do the Peelers need that check? Well, no, and at the end of the day, Mike, the thing that Greg and I keep finding out is that the more technology advances, the simpler the bottom line in the music industry gets. The guy who walks in with his guitar to Delilah's and plays for an evening and gets 200 bucks in his hand at the end of the night along with a shot of Maker's Mark, I mean, that's still the way musicians make 99.9% of their income. <laughs> Bingo. Know? Yeah. And I think in a weird way, that's how they want to make their income. Yeah, it's about playing music for people. Yeah, and on the flip side, the music industry is hemorrhaging money. They're not making money from the CD sales as, uh, at, to the extent that they were five, six years ago. So they're looking for a new revenue stream. So they're, so they're going to come to these bars more often and shake them down and say, you know, here's the licensing fee. Give us your 2000 2500 3000 a year. And I'm okay with paying it. 
So let me let me be clear. I'm okay with paying that fee. I would just be a little. I, I would prefer to be a little more clear on where's the money go. Mike Miller from Delilah's. Uh, as always, a pleasure. Thanks, Mike. Hey, thanks, guys. You guys uh, keep up the good work over at Town Opinions. Coming up on Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media, reviews of the new albums from Kanye West and 50 Cent. You're listening to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. Look how you talking to me like Kanye West is my equal right now. It's like me putting myself in Michael Jackson's date and then acting like, whoa, it's a battle between 50 Cent and Michael <laughs> Jackson. When Thriller sold 30 million records and 50 Cent, biggest album sold 12. I think it's I think it's cute for him to try to put him next to me and actually make a comparison. There's no comparison. You got the work of be going against the ball. Greg, that is New York rapper 50 Cent talking about his competition at the top of the charts with Chicago rapper Kanye West. I think this is a fascinating story, and uh, granted, much of this is hyped in the press, okay? Third album from both of these hip-hop superstars coming out on the same day. They're going head-to-head. 50 Cent has said that if Curtis, his album, does not sell more than Kanye West's graduation, that he will retire from the music business. Kanye's been backing away. I said, I don't see myself in competition with him. I'm in competition with Justin Timberlake, who is the best-selling black artist of uh, of the last year. You know, Timberlake is not African-American, but but Kanye's point was that this guy is having this crossover appeal. Meanwhile, uh, people in the industry say Kenny Chesney, the country hat act, may outsell both of them. <laughs> I do think that there is a really interesting thing here in that both of these albums are highly anticipated by lovers of hip-hop and by anybody who's paying attention to pop music in general because these guys are giants in their field. And I think that this represents in some ways a clash between two art forms. You know, 50 Cent is the reigning gangster rapper of the moment. You and I have criticized gangster rap for a long time on this show for being played out artistically, just be having become a musical and lyrical cliche. 50 Cent, famously, you know, I've been shot 29 times, been stabbed 100 times. You know, that's his whole shtick. Kanye West represents something pretty new and different. I think that in a lot of ways this is a, a showdown between two art forms as much as it's a showdown between two artists. I agree, and I think it's a, it's critical time for the music industry, as we've been saying throughout the show, throughout the history of Sound Opinions. <laughs> it's a critical time for the music industry. It needs to get its act together, never more so than now, Jim. Record sales are in the toilet once again, but hip-hop sales in particular are nosediving. Rap is down 44% since 2000 and 33% just this year alone. So hip-hop, which was really viewed as the new art form in the late 90s, hip-hop was dominating the Keeping commercial the mainstream. Afloat. Now it's, it's nosediving, and I think the issues that you're talking about just a few minutes ago are part of the problem. There's a sense that all these issues that drove the rap commercial surge six, seven, eight years ago are played out. People have seen enough videos with scantily clad models drinking Cristal with uh, you know the hip-hop superstar with the bling encrusted jewels all over Glorifying gunplay and drugs and, and all the whole shtick. So, you know, what's going to happen now? 50 is one of those artists that has sold more than 10 million records at a pop 
for the industry. He's coming back. He needs to prove himself again. Kanye is sort of viewed as the future of the industry. He's the guy who represents kind of the the normal everyday guy who happens to be making a rap record, a middle class guy who makes no bones about it. I'm not a gangster. I grew up, you know, middle class on the south side of Chicago. That's what I'm going to rap about. Which, let's face it, you know, is is a much more identifiable upbringing to the vast majority of African Americans in this country, or people, period, than than Fifty Cent's glorified drug dealer and all of his, you know, getting shot and thuggery on the streets. Let us dive into the music. We're going to start with Fifty Cent and his album Curtis. You can admire me if you could catch one of your wig. You see the test the rose to the toasters right on my lap. So if it get out of line and it, I got an arsenal of infantry, I'm built for this mentally. That's why I'm the general. I do what they pretend to do. I'll still kill a track from the new 50 Cent record, Curtis. Curtis Jackson III has spent a great deal of time doing shady things in his life <laughs> and makes uh, no bones about it. He was a crack cocaine dealer in New York City. He was shot nine times. He was stabbed. He's been in trouble with the law. All the while, was able to, to uh, manufacture a very credible hip-hop uh, career as an underground artist that first caught the ear of Jam Master Jay of Run DMC and then Eminem. Got signed to a major label yep. deal, put out two records in 2003 and 2005 that both sold multi-millions of copies, sort of redefined gangster rap in a New York City image. At the same time, Jim, an incredibly astute businessman. Forbes magazine recently estimated his personal fortune at $32 million. I mean, this Man. guy's got his imprint on everything. He's got, you know, he's done movies. He's been, he's got a gym shoe line. He's got vitamin drinks. He's got condoms. Yeah. That the he's vitamin drinks selling. the one that, that this, kills me. What do you, I think of, every time I think of a vitamin drink, I think of a guy who's been shot nine times. Think of 50 Cent. Yeah, absolutely. Not only that, he is a master of creating hype, creating these kind of false feuds with people like Ja Rule and The Game and Cameron and, and most recently Kanye West to build up hype behind his records. So as a businessman, 50 Cent has sort of established this kind of thug persona as businessman to a you know the highest degree. He's, he's sort of taken what Jay-Z has done and given it an a, a even harder street image to help sell his records and, and, and create the 50 cent brand, to use a really noxious term. But I does mean, it work as art? Exactly. That's what we care about as critics. Uh, let's play another track from this album, which we should point out as well has attracted some major guests. You know, this guy moves units, so big name industry people are contributing here. You've got Justin Timberlake and Timbaland. You've got Robin Thicke, Eminem, Mary J. Blige. We're going to play a track called I Get Money, which kind of brings it right down to the basics for uh, old Curtis. Here it is on Sound Opinions. the ever-eloquent Curtis Jackson III with I Get Money from his third album, Curtis. Greg, I hate this record. I, I really hate this record. I get crap sometimes from listeners and from readers saying, you know, you just don't like gangster rap. That is not true. I do believe that art can be made out of the subject of 
drug dealing and, and living a violent life on the streets. I've liked two albums in the last year that really blew me away, Ghostface Killers, Fish Scales, and the, the last record by The Clips. I mean, in those cases, you had stories of drug dealing and violence and with all the sexism and the misogyny and all, the part of that world with a novelistic detail like Jim Thompson or Iceberg Slim, whereas Curtis Jackson here is a cartoon character, and it's a bad cartoon. It, it's not a parody, although it plays like one. His obsessions are money. I'm going all the way to the bank. I'm laughing all the way to the bank. I like to kill people. I like to be violent, you know, disrespecting women every which way. He's not saying this with any humor. He's not saying this with any insight into the human condition, no originality, no interest in the rhymes. I, I don't think he's a particularly great rapper. You know, the guy's got an ear for hooks. That's all he's got. But these hooks were all done in the late 80s. You know, they're, they're all a decade and a half, two decades old at this point. We've been here. We've done this. And it's been done much better. And as far as I'm concerned, 50 and gangster rap are played if this is considered the paradigm of that form. Well, it's a cynical record in, the, in that, uh, you know, his, his two previous obsessions were, were guns and hoes. Uh, now he's added money to the to, to the list of things that he's obsessed with, and and it's equally obnoxious. I mean, his his tone as a vocalist is consistently deadpan throughout this record. There doesn't seem to be a whole lot of joy in this record, nor a lot, nor any tenderness. The only time he lets his guard down a little bit is on that sort of ballady song "Follow My Lead" with Robin Thicke on it. Otherwise, we are talking about a guy who's got to prove himself. I'm the hardest guy in the block. I'm going to walk down your block and I'm going to kill you. Right. That's essentially the right. message he's sending in this record over and over again. The hooks, yes, the man had the hooks for a long time. He he's a an established songwriter. He's probably one of the better known and most successful hip hop songwriters of the last five or six years. He he established the game with the, the songwriting on the game's debut record. Yeah. In addition, to creating a number of hits of his own. But the hooks here, Jim, are lame. That single that he released straight to the bank with that staccato ha ha ha. He's lost his touch as a as a hook man, and as a result, there's really no reason to listen to this record. It's incredibly cynical. The, the, what I'm saying is the, the hooks that this guy was once known for are lacking, and then you're left with the content, which is abysmal. It's a trash it record, no doubt about it. Buy it, burn it, trash it, right? Same page here? Absolutely. On the other hand, in the other corner, we have this man. Mr. West, Mr. West, Mr. Fresh, Mr. By himself, he's so impressed. I mean, damn, did you even see the test? You got D's, um, D's, Rosie Perez, and yes, barely passed. Any and every class, looking at every sad, cheated on every test. I guess this is my dissertation. Homie, this shit is basic. Welcome to graduation. Good morning. That is Chicago and Kanye West. This is my dissertation, he says, on the opening track of his third album. Graduation is the record. Good morning is the song. What an opening track that is. Greg, this guy has come out of nowhere, uh, really just in, in three short years, and established himself as one of the biggest production forces in popular music today, working with all sorts of artists, scoring huge hits for them, and establishing himself as a significant rapper. Although many people in the hip-hop world say, you know, he's he's got a stilted flow, he's not really a great rapper, but boy, he can craft those hooks. I think over the course of these three albums, he's established that, that he can rap. Graduation is him proving himself once again, or trying to. Uh, he's all over the map. He's working a little bit with John Bryan, who made such a big impact on that last record. He's got all sorts of interesting samples on here. Everything from Can Sing Swan Song, the, the, the yeah. German art rock band of the early 70s, part of the Krautrock movement, to Laura Nero. Wow. It's a smorgasbord. It's hard for me to even talk about it without giving my opinion, but we want to play a song first and then get into the musical goods here. It's always a good sign when we have a 10-minute conversation about which track we're even going to play because we wanted to play like 10 of them. 
we chose Flashing Lights. Here's an indicative moment from uh, Kanye West's third album, Flashing Lights on Sound Opinions. From a page of your favorite author And the weather's so breezy Man, why can't life always be this easy? She in the mirror dancing so sleazy I get a call like, where are you, Yeezy? And try to hit you with the old Wapti Till I got flashed by the paparazzi Dang, these niggas got me I hate these niggas more than a Nazi call, I know you love the show but I never thought that you would take it this far What do I know? Flashing Lights from the new Kanye West record, Graduation. That is a classic steppin' song, as they say on the south yeah. side of Chicago. Explain that to America, Greg, Kanye, for those who don't know. Well, anybody who uh, went to a South Michigan Avenue club in the 70s or 80s heard a steppin' song, and it, it's basically a dancing song. It's a classic dancey song. Slow dance. In the Dusties tradition of Chicago soul music. Thank you. Soul music in Chicago. Tremendous tradition here. Doo-wop in the 50s, soul in the 60s with people like Curtis Mayfield and the Shylights in the 70s. Kanye West is very much in that tradition. He grew up listening to this music. It was part of his household. He is bringing it up to date for the 21st century. At the same time, he's an innovator. You know, using those synth samples on this record and and steeped in the Daft Punk mode. He he became obsessed with Daft Punk in the last year. And those keyboards are, I think, the key to the sound of this record, whereas the previous record was very much steeped in those orchestrations by his collaborator, John Bryan. This is very much a, a stripped-down, more of a stripped-down record in that regard, but very, very keyboard-heavy. And those tones, those keyboard tones, the richness of those keyboard tones are the key to the sonics on this record. Lyrically, the guy's stepping up. He has a tendency on this record especially, the graduation, okay, I am stepping out into the adult world, and people are dissing me. You know, I'm, I'm a big target now. There's a big target on my forehead. There's a little bit of petulance in this record, like I'm not getting the credit I deserve. You know, you got to stop beating, up, beating me up. But at the same time, I think what redeems it is his sense of humor. There are little throwaway lines in this record all over the place that make me laugh. Oh, Kanye my West's God, yeah. sense of humor is really worth paying attention to. I'll give to. you my favorite. I'll tell you how long I've been on you since Prince been on Apollonia, <laughs> since OJ got Isotonas. <laughs> That's incredible. I, you know, the little aside in... In a, in a song like Good Life where he talks about them seasoned haters give me salty looks. Laurie's. Yeah. You know? I mean, just a little aside, and you just like, a, he just threw that line away, right? but it's a crack-up line. So he's got those little little bits in there, and then he ends the album with, I think, one of the best things he's ever done lyrically, which is a song called Big Brother, which I think encapsulates everything this guy is about. Have you ever walked in the shadow of a giant? Not only your client, the presidito. Hola, Ovito. The game getting foul, so here's a free throw. I was always on the other side of the peephole. Then I dropped Jesus Walks, now I'm on a steep pole. And we know New Jack City gotta keep my brother, but to be number one, I'ma beat my brother. On that He's needy. He's ambitious. He needs his mentor's approval. He loves Jay-Z, and yet he hates him for some of the things he's done to him. And all that conflictedness is right out front. Whereas a guy like 50 Cent is all about swagger. The pose. And I have no weaknesses. I will yeah. kill you. Kanye West is all about exposing his weaknesses and broadcasting them to the world and saying, I want to do better. I don't know how to do better necessarily. I'm struggling with this stuff and making great music out of it, which I think is a, makes him a really compelling human figure, somebody that everybody can relate to. Absolutely. You know, I mean, he first made his mark on his first album talking about, you know, I, I'm working at the Gap and I'm not making enough money to take the bus every day to get to the Gap, right? And that is a part of life that, that much more of America can relate to than 50 Cent's cartoon image of the gangster. And I think Kanye is continuing that because let's face it, we've all shot our mouths off and been jerks at different points in time. <laughs> and we have been 
kind of ruthless on uh, our Chicago homeboy here. Whenever he's begrudgingly bum rushed, you know, an award show and said, "I should have gotten this prize," it's like, man, why are you? Why do you care? Right? Right. He's saying that about himself here. I can be a real buffoon. <laughs> I know I can shoot my mouth off, and I'm having a hard time telling when I should, like with the Katrina comments about President Bush, and when I should just shut up. You know, but who hasn't felt that way? Mm-hmm. Especially after you know drinking a little bit too much or being the star of the party, right? You cross a line. And a lot of this album is him looking at that and saying, I've gone too far. It's musically brilliant. He, he, he's gotten beyond the signature Kanye sound, which is to take a soul classic, sample a hook from it, slow yep. it down or speed it up and make uh, make a new song out of that. You know, here he's creating music with Chris Martin of Coldplay and actually sounds good. He's doing that synthesizer thing you talked about. I think his his uh, horizons are boundless. I mean, this album is is really masterfully creative. Yeah, it's a great record, and uh, I think my only debate on uh, you know how does it stack up with the previous two, which were both brilliant. You know, where do you weigh those three records? Uh, you know, is he getting better all the time, or is he, has he made three classics? Is this in fact a better record than the first two? I love it, having it's those so debates. Different. It's so different. It's so different. You know, it's a great record in a completely different way than the last two. Yeah, I think it's obviously a buy it record for both of us, and he's got a an edge to him, a creativity that hip-hop needs more of. And that and that, that if we see the end of the 50 cents of the world and more of Kanye West, you know, bring it on. Did you that you were yes, I did. So I packed it up and brought it back to the crib. Just a little something, show you how we live. Everybody want it, but it ain't that serious. Mm-hmm. That's that ish. So if you gon' do it, do it just like this. Greg, that is a double trash it for 50 Cent, a double buy it for Kanye West. Uh, we'll check in next week and see who won the feud or if Kenny Chesney trumped both of them. <laughs> it's a little more uh, Kanye under us. This is a song called Champion that's uh, sampling Steely Dan's Kid Charlemagne. If you want to chime in on the Kanye West or the 50 Cent albums, by all means do. Send us an email at interact at soundopinions.org or give us a call on our hotline at 888-859-1800. We're going to be back in a minute on Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media with a review of the new album by the Mekons and my Desert Island Jukebox pick. I think he did when he packed it up and brought it back to the crib. Just a little something, show you how we live. Anything I wanted, man, it seems so serious. That's that ish. So if you gon' do it, do it just like this. It's harder than dying For me, giving up's way harder than trying Lauren Hill said her heart was in Zion I wish her heart still was in rhyming Cause who the kids gonna listen to? Huh? I guess me if it isn't you Last week I paid a visit to the institute They got the dropout keeping kids in the school I guess I clean up my act like Prince do If not for the pledge, at least for the principal They got the CD, then got to see me drop gems Like I dropped out a P.E. They used to feel invisible now they know they invincible. Welcome back to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. That is the Mekons with a song called The Hope and the Anchor from their 179th album or something like that, Greg Cott. <laughs> At least. Natural, uh, their newest release. Actually, this is celebrating the Mekons' 30th anniversary. Now largely based in Chicago, the group formed in Leeds, England, way back in 1977. Only two of the uh, prolific founding members left. John Langford, who's the Chicago contingent leader, and Tom Greenhalge, who's the Leeds, England 
contingent leader. They have not been heard from in terms of new music since 2002. I'm not counting the 2004 record Punk Rock, which was a, a great story. They got back together and re-recorded some of their early classic punk rock singles when they were contemporaries of The Clash because they didn't have rights to that music anymore, so they just had to record new versions in order yeah. to put it out. Now, for this recording, they gathered in the English countryside, and according to their uh, their own bio, they, quote, drank whiskey all night, listened to the rocks, by that they mean mm. the Stonehenge rocks, and the stones, by that they mean the Rolling Stones, and turned into strange old frequencies. In other words, uh, that Led Zeppelin three kind of mode. Mm-hmm. We're in an English cottage, we're in the countryside, we're getting soused, we got a fire going, and we're going to have a back porch hootenanny, which for the Mekons means that they're drawing on elements of American roots music, Celtic folk, country, rock, the punk that's part of their past, all of that and more. Let's play a song from this record, I think, that's uh, typical of, of many of the recordings here. Again, all done first take, largely recorded live, with the whole group sitting around in this cottage. This is a song called Dark, 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 which features Mr. Greenhog on uh, vocals uh, on Sound Opinions. The twisted trees sing Dark, dark, dark Broken branches hidden far down below. The trees stare back and we burn in smoke, reflecting. Dark, Dark, Dark from the Mekons' new record, Natural. Uh, dark, Dark, Dark uh, being not only what they saw when they looked out their window at night, but I think a, a state of the world <laughs> as yeah. far as the Mekons are concerned. This is a band that has always you know, reflected its times in a very unconventional but yet very poignant way. They're, they're, they're a political band, but yet they're not about strident political statements. It sort of seeps into the music. This is a, I think, Jim... One of the bleakest Mekons records and also one of the prettiest records yeah, they made. Yeah. It's a beautiful record at the same time a very dark one. It's interesting. You know, I think they, they, they took Whitman and Thoreau to heart and said, let's get back to nature and mm-hmm. let's, let's commune with the trees. Well, in that song, even the trees look kind of messing. It's <laughs> yeah. like the planet's rebelling against them, too. I think it's the best threatening trees song since The Trees by Rush. Absolutely. It's, 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 uh, so there's nothing left. I mean, the world is rebelling. The end of the world is near. Nature has had its fill of the human race as well. So they're huddled together in this room trying to make this, it's kind of like a last refuge kind of scenario, you know, the last days of the planet and we're making music together and it's beautiful what the Mekons do so well and as you said they've dabbled in all these different types of music reggae honky tonk folk punk uh, they've expanded way beyond being just contemporaries of the Sex Pistols and the Buzzcocks into being this really all-encompassing band what they do so well is they take that drone and they love their drones that, yeah. that drone, those droning violins those droning voices and they layer these kind of very simple but evocative melodies over the top with really cutting lyricism uh, they're brilliant at that and I think this record really distills what they do best in, in that way it's, you know these are a dozen kind of very dark 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 songs but at the same time there's a beauty in it and I think it encapsulates what this band has done so well 30 years on Jim this band is still doing great work, which I Absolutely. think is a real compliment to that. That is a plus and a minus, Greg, because I often empathize with younger listeners who have heard for many years that the Mekons are great. Where do you come in? <laughs> okay, I came in midway through right. with So Good It Hurts in 1988, and that was a largely acoustic record done for Minneapolis's Twin Tone label at the time. I think this album has a lot in common sonically and thematically, so it resonated with me. Look, I know the Mekons can be daunting. I, we made a joke. I don't even know. I, I can't count how many albums. Can you? 
Yeah, they, I think it's like 17 or 18, remarkably enough. But all right, there's so, all sorts of bootlegs out well, there. And the problem is 17 or 18 actual Mekons albums, but then, you know, Langford has six or seven yeah. bands of his own. That's a and side everybody has, will kill you. Yeah, it's ridiculous. So you're talking literally in the hundreds of records. Where do you start? This is as good a place as any if you've never come into the Mekons before because it is wonderfully pretty, gorgeous music that that has plenty of entrance points it's, it's you know not off-putting in any way you could start here with this being your first Mekons album and really go in any of the directions that they've explored throughout the previous 30 years you know it's a great record i think these guys are absolutely a, a national treasure in two nations yeah in the british isles and, continental and in america now it's a buy it record as far as i'm concerned absolutely i tell you little buddy this whole island is bewitched Whenever possible, either Greg or I like to take a turn at popping a quarter into the Desert Island jukebox and playing a track that we can't live without. Mr. Cott, it's your turn. Thank you, Jim. Uh, Talking about the Mekons has gotten me thinking about what an accomplishment it is to make uh, great music for as long as a band like that has. 30 years, incredible. Rock and roll, however, really is the story about bands who barely... Uh, existed for more than a year or two and, and maybe made one great record if they were lucky. And one of the bands that I, I, I want to highlight today is exactly that story, the Johnny Burnett Rock and Roll Trio. Mm. Not really a huge name, but in a brief period in, in the mid-50s, this band was all that. And it really comes down to one recording session, really. In July 1956, they went to Owen Bradley's Barn Studio in Nashville. It was a band out of Memphis, Tennessee. Two brothers, Johnny Burnett and Dorsey Burnett, with their friend Paul Burleson on electric lead guitar. And the three of these gentlemen went into this studio to record some music. Uh, Sam Phillips rejected them, said, hey, you guys sound too much like Elvis Presley. I'm not going to worry. You know, I, I, I can't record you guys. So they go to Owen Bradley. He records them. They make some groundbreaking music in these few days at, uh, at the Barn Studio and uh, break up about a year later. Really never went anywhere. The Burnett brothers actually ended up writing some music for other people that actually brought them some money and some fame, ended up dying young. Paul Burleson's the only surviving member of that band. And Burleson is really the one who makes this record. Burleson loosened an amplifier tube to get this fuzz effect on his guitar that was absolutely groundbreaking. I mean, consider that this was 1956. Tuned down the top two strings on his guitar, an octave, and created this sound that really was like nothing else in the whole rockabilly scene. And then Johnny Burnett on lead vocal, just an absolute wild man jumping out of his skin. I mean, Sam Phillips may have been right. Maybe this guy did sound a little little like Elvis, but I got to tell you, Elvis never went as far as this guy did yeah, yeah, on this yeah. particular vocal. I mean, it is a primitive, primal scream that is the essence of what rock and roll was about in the in the mid-50s. It's a song called Train Kept a Rollin' that's been covered numerous times, and Led Zeppelin opened every one of its shows with this song in 68 and 69. The Yardbirds covered it. Aerosmith covered it. Motorhead covered it. <laughs> it is a great song. It's actually a cover of an R&B song by one tiny Bradshaw. But the, when the Johnny Burnett Rock and Roll Trio did the song, they defined it, and it's their version that everybody's been copying. So it's the Johnny Burnett Rock and Roll Trio with the train kept a rolling on Sound Opinions.
Johnny Burnett and the Rock and Roll Trio with Train Kept a Rolling on Sound Opinions. Jim, we're going to be back next week with an interview with uh, one of the great bands of the last 25 years, the Flaming Lips. As always, Greg, Sound Opinions was produced by Todd Bachman, Jason Saldana, and Robin Lynn, with our executive producer and fearless leader, Tori Southside Malatia, who I heard is starting a feud and a beef to help out Britney Spears <laughs> on her new album. I don't know what that's about. On Sound Opinions, everyone's a critic. Now it's time to hear what you have to say. New messages. Hi, I'm listening to your show about the greatest lead-off tracks in rock history. And uh, My name is uh, Nick Ciccone. By the way, I'm from uh, Toledo, Ohio. And uh, I think one of the uh, greatest lead-off tracks, at least in my mind, is Hell's Bells uh, from ACDC's album Back in Black. That's the tune, the tone, and the mode um, for the whole album. Thanks. Hey guys, it's Steve Poston and lovely Graceland, Illinois. I love the show. I especially love the show about leadoff track, long live the album format. The track that did it for me was the Absolutely Sweet Marie by Jason and the Scorchers off Reckless Country Soul. You know, when I first heard that song about 20 years ago, it completely changed the way I listened to music. It changed how I opened my mind to music I otherwise thought I didn't like. And it's changed what I've listened to for the last 20 years. So that's my thought. Thanks a lot. Hi, this is Michaela Moyer. I am from... Uh Inverness, Illinois, and I would like to voice my opinion. Personally, the best is uh, Interpol from their first album, Turn on the Bright Lights. The song is Untitled. Hi, this is Brian from New Jersey, and I'm calling to talk about the great starting tracks for albums. One I think you guys forgot was Bone Machine off the Pixies' Serpa Rosa album. Uh, it begins with this great inside-out drum beat, and um, by the time you actually get the beat, you get your foot stomp into the, uh, the back beat, it stops. And there's this great dissonant harmony between Black Francis and Kim Deal on the line, Your Bones Got a Little Machine. Your bones got a little machine. And it kicks back up again, and it's just, uh, the sound is cavernous and huge, and he said that Public Spirit is the song that launched the Third Revolution. Well, uh, Kirk Cobain said he was just trying to rip off the Pixies. So if it wasn't for Bone Machine, they would have been the Swell Team Spirit. With what you said, thanks a lot. All right, this one's for all the metalheads out there who tune into you guys every week. Metallica's Master of Puppets, the last piece of vinyl I ever bought. Purchased it at an independent record store, rode my dirt bike there to go get it when I was 14. Those opening chords of Battery set a whole tone for that album which never lets up it's total aggression just an assault on your ears great opening song 
great album. They suck today, but hey, it was good stuff. Take it easy, guys. Love your show. No more messages. To give us your opinion on sound opinions, call our hotline, 1-888-859-1800. We'll be back next week with sound opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media.